Hello, and welcome to the Artificial Intelligence in Drug Discovery podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I'm your host. On this episode, I speak with Lucas Ciao, co-founder and head of business operations at Protein Cure. Protein Cure uses artificial intelligence and quantum computing to design protein-based drugs such as antibodies and peptides. These drugs have many advantages, but are hard to discover. Protein Cure aims to overcome this challenge with the help of quantum computing, reinforcement learning, and molecular simulations. On this episode, you'll learn the benefits of protein-based drugs, challenges with discovering them, and how Protein Cure has combined emerging technologies in what may be the most science fiction sounding drug discovery startup I've seen yet. This episode is brought to you by BenchSci. BenchSci uses artificial intelligence to reduce the time, uncertainty, and cost of biomedical research. Use it to find research antibodies up to 24 times faster than using PubMed or Google Scholar. Just enter a protein of interest and filter by technique, organism, tissue, or 13 other options. BenchSci returns only relevant published figures and products. Researchers in 14 of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies and more than 1,300 academic institutions now rely on BenchSci to find antibodies. It's free for researchers in academic and nonprofit institutions. You can sign up at benchside.com. If you work in industry, just use the contact form on benchside.com to reach out for a demo. And now, on to the interview. Hi, Lucas. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. So I want to jump right in here and have you start by describing the types of drugs that you're focused on at Protein Cure. So what's the difference for anyone who doesn't know between small molecules and protein-based therapeutics? Right. So those are the, the two basically major classes of therapeutics. Small molecules are pretty much exactly what they sound like, smaller molecules, and they are the majority of most drugs that most people would be familiar with, and they're the majority of the drug market in general, about 80%. Proteins are large biomolecules. I'm sure a lot of your audience would already know this, made up of one or more chains of amino acids. They differ from each other in terms of the sequence of those amino acids and the length of those chains of amino acids. They are pretty much prevalent in every function in the human body. And we are basically just beginning to start to use them uh, as therapeutics. And, you know, they vary in size quite drastically. So the smallest kind of protein therapeutics are on the order of 10 amino acids. And then there are large protein drugs, which are on the order of, of hundreds of amino acids. Protein Cure as a company is right now focused on these kind of smaller proteins, also known as small peptide therapeutics. And that's mostly a function of actually hardware limitations. You know, our hope is that we'll be able to kind of scale our algorithms as the hardware improves and be able to design larger protein therapeutics. Um, but protein therapeutics in general are the fastest growing area of drugs. And actually most of the, the best sellers or the most valuable drugs are protein therapeutics. 
Mm -hmm. So those would be antibody-based therapeutics then like uh, Humira or Adalimumab. Exactly. And what are some of the advantages of of protein-based therapeutics over small molecules? Right. So, you know, there's definitely a a few key advantages, and there's three that that I think really excite people. One is that there are just a wider variety of binding sites um, that we can target with protein therapeutics. So if you think of your target disease, you know, because these proteins can take very special three-dimensional stripes and have very unique structures, they can also be much larger in size and vary in size. There's just a wider range of sites that they can interact with. Um, and they can also trigger some of these protein-protein interactions. Again, also because we can design very specific protein structures and they're a little bit larger, they often get greater specificity of binding. So, you know, maybe as a kind of slight aside, if you think about drug discovery, and I'm sure a lot of people in the audience would also know this analogy as trying to find a key for a lock. So your disease is this lock, it's a three-dimensional shape, and you need to find a molecule that fits in that lock to disable it. And that's the drug, it's the key. Um, Proteins, uh, because the key is a little bit bigger and they can fit the pocket very, very accurately or very with high specificity, there's less side effects sometimes and better efficacy in terms of treating the disease. The the third kind of uh, benefit from using proteins, and this is actually really important to in silico methods or using computers to design drugs, and is really actually for small proteins, a, a big advantage is synthesizability concerns. So in general, if you design a small protein drug, it may be costly to synthesize, but you are always going to be able to synthesize it. And that's just not the case in small molecule drug discovery. So if, if a computer comes up with some crazy new small molecule, there's no guarantee that you could actually create that small molecule. Whereas there are some cost concerns sometimes with uh, protein therapeutics, but you can basically always synthesize it. Um, and so if you found something that works, you will be able to make it in a, in a lab and distribute it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I've been talking uh, recently on a, a couple of recent episodes uh, about generative drug design, uh, small molecules and chemical synthesis. And sometimes you get a lot of novelty from the in silico methods, but they're invalid, right? So you have to balance right. that novelty with uh, validity. So so it sounds like there's a lot, obviously there's a lot of advantages here, but it's not so easy to discover new protein-based therapeutics. So what are some of the challenges with that and, and, and what's behind those challenges? Yeah, so, you know, the kind of the biggest challenge really is just how little we know about proteins and structures. So, so the big kind of open question, or when you think about drug discovery, and again, going back to the analogy about uh, keys, is we basically want to find, when we get a new disease, the key that fits the disease. And if you just think about small proteins, so we're talking about things on the order of say 50 to 100 amino acids, um, there's already more possibilities than basically the number of atoms in the universe. So there's just like an uncountable number of possibilities. Hmm. And human beings know about roughly 150,000 structures. So we know only the tiniest fraction of what's potentially out there. And that's the fundamental question was if or is is if there's a useful therapeutic in that space of unknown protein structures how do we go about finding it and like i said synthesis is always possible but you can't synthesize again what we're talking about you know 10 to the 80 10 to the 65 possibilities um and then the other major problem is that 
there's this relationship between a protein's amino acid sequence, the structure it then folds into based on that amino acid sequence, and then the function it has based on that structure. And these relationships are just really hard for human beings to parse. Um, and this is where we start to get to the idea that machine learning might be able to help or computational techniques might be able to help. Um, understanding that relationship so for a human being is just really challenging so that when they're trying to design a new drug, um, there's so many permutations that are possible. The relationships are so hard to understand that it's made it really challenging to create novel protein drugs. And in fact, most protein drugs are just things that we've found in the human body or in nature and just made a very small tweak. We haven't actually really discovered novel uh, protein therapeutics. Hmm. And for large proteins, we have just no idea how to even begin to think about that problem. Right. The complexity on three levels. So, so is, is the main difference, the primary difference from what you're trying to do versus other startups looking at drug discovery or even uh, applying computers for in silico drug discovery is that you're tackling these challenges, these three levels of challenges. Is that the, the primary difference uh, of protein cure? I think so. So maybe it's good to differentiate a little bit between what we're doing and kind of traditional experimental drug discovery. And then maybe I'll talk a little bit about in silico, other in silico methods, because I think we're, we're different sure. than that too. Um, you know, compared to experimental drug discovery, there it, it's exactly kind of what the word suggests. It's, a, it's more like discovery. Um, you synthesize on the order of billions um, of new proteins or, or proteins that are existing, or, or just basically you synthesize billions of keys, uh, you throw them in a beaker with the lock, and you see if they work, and you hope that they work. Um, and, and you hope that you stumble upon a molecule that essentially fits the problem you're now tackling. And we're a little bit different and more similar to the, the thesis of most computer-based methods in that we're trying to design the key, right? We're, we're thinking about, all right, what is the shape that we need to fit? What does that mean about the shape we need to design? And then how do we work backwards to kind of creating the sequence of amino acids that's going to allow us to, to create that shape? Hmm. Um, so that's, a, and so that's a, you know, the difference between kind of what we think of as discovery versus kind of engineering. Um, and then compared to other in silico methods or other machine learning methods, the big difference is that we are a lot less dependent on data. And I'm sure we'll get into a little bit about the technology and, and why that's true. But for us, what's interesting is, again, I mentioned there's only 150,000 known protein structures. So whenever you try to design a new drug, what usually ends up happening is you have to pick from what you've already seen, the data set that you've already seen, or you try to stitch together this new drug from pieces of molecules that you've already seen. And in either case, uh, you know, our belief is that you end up very close to where you started. The data limitations basically prevent you from exploring truly novel, spa truly novel space. Mm -hmm. So if you, haven't, if you don't have a lot of data on non-natural amino acids or on certain types of shapes or certain lengths, you just never create something or suggest something. Your, your algorithms never come up with something in those spaces. You don't even try them. Um, and so by being less dependent on data, we think that we're going to be able to consider uh, and find really novel molecules and novel structures. And so that's how we think we're going to be a little bit different from the other kind of in silico methods, which maybe take huge data sets and try to scan uh, you know, known interactions or libraries. Mm -hmm. And that is how most 
machine learning based in silico drug discovery is being done in one way or another, even on the generative side, they're generating based on a, a, a training set uh, of compounds and those compounds would be existing compounds. So I, I think you're right there, which leads me into a conversation of the technology. I mean, the, the technology that you use that's most directly relevant to not having a lot of data is reinforcement learning, which is great when you don't have a lot of data, but you're using three, at least three uh, key types of technology that I want to discuss. One being quantum computing, which I think people will find fascinating. The other being reinforcement learning, and then the other one being molecular simulations. I'd love for you to describe how these come together in your approach. And, and what would help me and hopefully listeners as well is kind of the workflow uh, of how all those technologies come together. How do you process everything you know, from end to end using each one of those technologies? Sure. So, you know, I think Maybe I can kind of walk you through, and maybe a visual would help here, but, but I'll try to walk you through uh, verbally. We basically start with a disease target that's given to us, and that target has to have a 3D structure. So in our case, you know, our customers are most likely going to be large pharma companies, and they're going to have a known disease target that they're interested in finding uh, a therapeutic for. It helps if they have uh, a, a guess as to what the peptide therapeutic is going to look like, um, or at least some parameters around what it's going to look like, but not necessarily. And what we mean by the guess is basically this is a string of amino acids, right? So they don't necessarily know what the structure is yet. Um, we use molecular dynamic simulations to predict the shape of that protein. So you start mm -hmm. with an amino acid sequence of a protein. We use a computer to predict the 3D structure of that shape. Uh, molecular dynamic simulations are basically just the study of the physical movement of atoms and molecules using physical calculations in the computer. We then also simulate how well does this protein or therapeutic bind to the target, and we get basically a score, an energy score, saying, you know, is this an effective binder? And that's kind of the simulation box. The quantum computers come in, and these are, these are kind of all done on classical GPU clusters. Mm -hmm. They are accurate, but they're slow. And when we say slow, they can take somewhere between days to uh, weeks, depending on the size of the protein, uh, to give you an answer about how well did this thing bind. And the real problem is that being that slow makes it really hard to iterate. And from a drug discovery process, this just means they're not really usable for drug discovery, even though they could tell you a lot of useful things about what's happening uh, in, the, in the area of your interest. So what we do is, we solve a simplified version of the protein folding problem on a quantum computer. And so we give it that same amino acid sequence. It spits back some information to us, which is usually in the form of, hey, this amino acid one is close to amino acid six, and this chain of amino acids forms a specific shape, say a helix or a sheet or something like that. Um, and we take that, we extract that information from the quantum computer and feed it back into the simulations to speed them up. Mm -hmm. So you can think of the simulations normally, they start from very little known information. They're just simulating kind of the physics of the situation. And the quantum computer is kind of providing them with a starting point uh, or a best guess, biasing uh, the simulations to make them a lot faster. So it, it's almost like if you were trying to figure out what shape does or what key does this kind of protein fold into, and I told you a little bit about the outline. So yet you didn't have to try every possibility. You could kind of start with a lot of uh, more information. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's kind of the simulations box, because those two technologies combining together. And then we think about what would normally be traditionally a medicinal chemist's job. So they would take the molecule, they would see how it works, right? So they would get some feedback from whether that's an experiment or, or an in silico simulation. And then they would make a modification to the peptide and they would try to see the result and then they would make a modification and they would do this iterative loop. And what we're trying to do is complement the digital chemist with reinforcement learning. So instead of trying to have a human being necessarily suggest what mutation to make to the protein to make it a better drug, we have a computer suggesting the mutation and then simulating it again and the computer learns. So the computer makes a move, in this case a move being a, a mutation or a change to the drug, sees the result, tries to learn, tries to make another, simula- another suggestion for a new move, and it iterates like that. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of this iterative loop of simulations to fold proteins, score proteins, and then reinforcement learning to suggest new proteins to test. Fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I want to come dig a little bit deeper into each one of those, but it's a a really fascinating combination of technologies that does make a lot of sense to me. Before I I go on, though, you said faster. How much faster does the quantum computer or the quantum computing uh, make to the process that you said weeks if you were just using like a GPU cluster? How much faster does it uh, go when you use quantum computing? Right. So this is kind of interesting. So right now, um, the quantum computer is not providing a speed up. Uh, and we can talk a little bit more about the specific technologies of quantum computers, but there's basically a lot of evidence to believe that eventually, and eventually being say about two to three years, um, they will provide a speed up in terms of, they will be allow us to tackle problems that are outside the realm of classical computers. So, so the types of information we get from the quantum computer you could calculate those on a classical computer. You could actually calculate them on a laptop uh, for, say, up to 20 amino acids right now. For 30 amino acids, you are basically starting to push the boundaries of today's supercomputers. Uh, for 40 amino acids, you would not be able to compute those on a classical computer if you had a classical computer the size of, say, the universe. The problem is just one of these kind of classically hard uh, computer science problems. Mm-hmm. And on quantum computers today, we can only solve up to say 10 amino acids, but the algorithms scale much better. So the belief is that in two to three years, we'll be able to hit maybe 30 or 40 amino acids. And then in five years, you might be able to hit say 100, which mm-hmm. will just not just be a speed up, but it's just impossible for classical methods today. Hmm. So you're linking your, the, the success of the company to the growth in quantum computing the same way many other companies historically have linked their business to the growth in Moore's law. Yeah, I think, you know, as a company right now, a lot of the projects we're working on, we're basically, we're limited to these small peptide therapeutics, limited to about 25 amino acid drugs um, without quantum computer enhancements. If we want to truly push the limits of what's possible, yes, then we're definitely linking ourselves to uh, improvements in quantum computing. And, And, you know, this is kind of an aside, but quantum computing as an industry is in an incredibly interesting phase where there, there aren't even agreements on, you know, what are going to be the quantum computers that work. There are different architectures, different trade-offs being made. These are all engineering challenges. Um, and as you alluded to with Moore's law, you know, I think as a company, we're extremely confident that if human beings are good at nothing else, it's good at solving engineering challenges. Um, you know, we, we, we already have kind of functional quantum computers of various types. 
they clearly do work for small problems. And a lot of the problems people are trying to solve now are problems about like cooling and error correction and um, you know sensitivity to kind of outside uh, signals and noise and stuff. So you know those are the kind of problems we think they're definitely going to be likely to solve in, in the near term. Mm-hmm. How do you currently access quantum computing? I know that there's D-Wave, which has a system which is expensive. I know IBM has a quantum computer that you can access in the cloud, but this isn't like GPU clusters or cloud computing that's so widespread and so cost-effective. What are you actually using to perform your quantum uh, computations? Yeah, so I mean, so we, so the genesis of the company was uh, we came out of an incubator in Toronto uh, that had probably the first, it's the Creative Destruction Lab, um, and it pro- and a lot of actually um, computational therapeutics companies have come out of uh, the the lab, including Deep Genomics and Atomwise and a few others. But um, they had this year the first time the quantum computing stream, and we were basically the first graduate of that stream as a company. And as part of that stream, we got access to a couple of computers for free. So we started with D-Wave and Rigetti, as you alluded to. D-Wave, you can pay. Um, for access. They also sometimes give access for people doing kind of interesting things on the computer. Rigetti has, um, give sometimes they give companies access. Uh, again, also, if you're doing interesting things, sometimes they give access. And I believe they're opening up uh, like a ser- cloud services, kind of like Amazon Web Services, just like you would a- access 3D, hmm. uh, sorry, access GPU clusters, you could access their, their quantum computer, IBM has systems. Um, as we were able to kind of test and prototype our algorithms and show them Hey, here is an algorithm that has potential commercial value, and it's able to, and it allows you to benchmark your own progress, right? So they can figure out: Are they getting better? What do they need to improve? Um, we've created more and more uh, partnerships. So we now also work with Fujitsu, who's kind of got their own quantum computer. Um, you know, I think uh, there's Xanadu, uh, who is a Toronto-based kind of quantum computer and a different architecture. Uh, I. I, there'll be a couple we're hopefully announcing in the next couple of weeks and more partnerships. Um, most of them, we kind of provide a little bit of services ourselves. So we're basically in terms of giving them feedback on the chip, giving them feedback on the results. Um, and they will give us access to the devices to prototype our algorithms. Uh, so some of those are publicly available. Some of those are just kind of through our own collaborations. Um, but that's, everything is basically accessed via the cloud. Um, just like, and I think that's the model that's going to, to exist, at least for the near term, because these devices are very expensive, you know, tens of millions of dollars. The infrastructure is, in general, very complicated. They're, they're held in freezers, you know, one two hundredth the temperature of space or something. So uh, you basically just rent time on them and you send them the problems, they compute the answers and they send them back to you. It seems like we're on the cusp of a revolution there, just strictly when you see how many companies now are closing in on that uh, quantum supremacy and just how, how competitive it's becoming. Uh, I think you guys are you know, being the first out of the uh, CDL as well. It sets you up for a lot of future opportunity. I, I just want to dig in a little bit to reinforcement learning since this podcast is about AI and drug discovery yeah. too. So uh, I think most people listening will be familiar with how reinforcement learning works, which is effectively that the, the agent performs an action, uh, gets some sort of reward signal, and then performs more actions that get it more rewards. But it's not always easy to configure that because sometimes uh, it, it, you either have a very sparse a re, uh, action space or reward space, and sometimes the reward is far off from the action and so on. Could you talk a little bit about how you've structured 
your reinforcement uh, learning algorithm so that you can have the agent take various actions and then what reward signals it's getting and maybe some of the challenges you had to overcome to get that to work? Yeah, so I mean, this is the part, you know, where we're still just on honestly doing a lot of ongoing research. Um, you know, I think the the vision is to figure out how to use a machine to help humans design drugs, right? And reinforcement learning, we think makes sense in our particular case, because of, as you mentioned, the lack of data and the fact that we have access to this kind of simulation environment. Um, so, you know, I, I want to make it clear that that we're still figuring it out uh, mm. in terms of how we're getting it all to work. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the most interesting areas in machine learning research. And, and certainly if, and I'll plug, if anybody's out there looking to work on it, please come talk to me. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so to talk a little bit about it in more specifics in our case. Um, so as you mentioned, reinforcement learning is kind of a type of machine learning different than the deep learning most people know about most famously used in AlphaGo and chess and video game playing, and you kind of give a great overview of, of how it works. The key is basically having an environment um, for the machine to interact with and learn from and having this reward function uh, for it to learn from and then having a set of actions it can take. So in our case, the set of actions is actually pretty simple. Um, they can basically mutate the therapeutic, right? So they can change amino acids in the candidate that we're considering. Um, and there's a bunch of things we allow it to change. Uh, we, can, we can sometimes restrict it to say, hey, you're only allowed to change certain spots on the therapeutic that we know are spots of interest. Or we can say, hey, you can only replace it with certain types of amino acids. Um, but that, that's generally the, the actions it's allowed to take. The reward function, uh, I mean, look at that last because it's, it's pretty interesting. But the simulation environment is exactly that box I talked about, those mm -hmm. molecular dynamic simulations. Um, and there it's kind of, those are the rules of the game, right? So it's mm -hmm. basically the physics and biology of the situation. And it just tells you what happens when you make an action. Does the basically, how does the new peptide look like? And how does that bind to the target of interest? The reward function is this uh, energy calculation that we make where we essentially calculate how good of a binder is the new therapeutic. So, that's basically, you know, just a score. And the score basically tells you, is this therapeutic uh, a better, more efficacious binder than the previous therapeutics? Hmm. What's really interesting about what we're doing, and we haven't even begun to kind of touch upon, is that as long as you know the relationship between, say, the structure of your molecule and the function, we could replace that reward function with, with theoretically anything. We could replace it with a measure of stability. We could replace it with a measure of cell permeability of toxicity, uh, and, and you could still do the same exact loop, uh, optimizing for a different reward other than just straight up binding efficacy. Sure. Um, you know, that's kind of what we're focused on because the problem is hard enough as it is, uh, and that's kind of the tools that we have built. But that's really um, what we're trying to do is figure out uh, how much information does the agent need? Uh, you know, what, what these are kind of technical questions, but basically we're, we're still figuring out exactly how to restrict the moves, the, the actions they can take, how to uh, basically give a reward function that maybe is a little bit tweaked to make better decisions, not just, as you alluded to, sometimes you make a change and it doesn't necessarily seem like you're improving the therapeutic, but it's just the first step in many changes that would right. improve the therapeutic. Um, so 
I would say that the, it's funny, you know, everyone views machine learning as a science, but the real art to it is something like designing the reward function mm-hmm. and explicitly modeling uh, what exactly do you mean by a state and things, uh, technical things of this nature. And that's, uh, to be honest, what, what I mentioned as, as we're still figuring out. Um, mm-hmm. And when we, we think it's exciting, you know, right now, the way we do it is we basically, we still hire kind of medicinal chemists to, to help guide the process. Um, but the hope is as we generate more, more of our own data, as the machine, the simulation starts to be able to create more molecules and see what works and doesn't work, um, we'll get better and better reinforcement learning agents. It's, it, we, we don't, again, we don't, I'd love to go into this in further detail. We're running out of time, but I think one point that I just wanted to hit on that you uh, alluded to is that once you, a lot of machine learning isn't even you know, writing the code because the number of lines of code in machine learning tend to be way, way fewer than, let's say, if you were to try to represent those all symbolically in logic, if-then statements and so on. But it's about figuring out, okay, what data am I going to use? What features am I going to select from that data? How am I going to design this reward function? And it's there's a lot of creativity involved in that that I think anybody who has kind of got a mind for thinking through problems uh, and creative solutions could do well at. Um, I guess I have one last question for you before just letting you uh, tell people where they can learn more is what's the vision for the company? You haven't uh, talked yet about, you know, and maybe it's too early, how you intend to go to market. Are you planning to commercialize products yourself, which seems to be a trend I'm seeing with some uh, startups, including in the Toronto area, uh, license products, build technology that other companies can use. What do you think the future might hold for protein care? Yeah, so at least in the in the short to medium term, we're definitely not kind of creating uh, products ourselves. You know, I think we have we're focused on really in the next few years doing a couple of key partnerships with large pharma companies to really validate all the different pieces of technology. Um, we're combining a lot of emerging technologies, as I as I've discussed, and we want to show the world that not only does everything work, but it enables kind of drug discovery in areas that were previously not possible and is going to enable potentially in the future the drug discovery on these like large antibodies which you know nobody has software or tools to focus on so our our projects right now are kind of collaborations um often where they're providing like i said the target and we're looking or at least the the, the ones we're discussing are are where they provide the target and it is early um, and we provide molecules back Um, there are other potential collaborations that we're, we're in discussions with that will be other various use cases for um, our technology, but but it's going to be a, a lot of early partnerships. Uh, and then I guess we'll, we'll figure it out. I think, you know, maybe this is a, a good lesson for anybody, and certainly a lesson for us, who's developing technology for drug discovery, whether that's AI or any other form, is that the drug discovery process today um, has evolved to not necessarily need um, the technology uh, in the ways that, you know, so for us in case of protein folding, because you could never fold proteins on computers, protein drug discovery never needed that capability. Mm-hmm. And so we have to figure out how we can provide value to them, um, how they've developed these billion dollar pipelines for optimizing protein drugs. And we have new technology and we need to figure out exactly how do we help them come up with completely novel molecules that can then still be refined, say using the same other lead optimization processes they use that can still be, you know, um, used in the same kind of animal models they use. Uh, and so we're still figuring that out to some extent, but we're really excited by the opportunity to work with a, a few large partners uh, to create kind of novel molecules and, no- and novel methods. 
Great. And I know there's definitely a willingness, uh, an increasing willingness for uh, large pharmaceutical companies to experiment with startups at various ways that they can use their technology. But you're right, you identified there one of the challenges for any company, any startup commercializing is getting into the workflow. How are you going to fit into an existing workflow? Because no matter how great your solution is, companies with processes that are established across thousands of uh, researchers aren't going to modify their workflow just for you. So uh, that's a, it's an interesting challenge. Um, where can people learn more? Speaking of your potential partners, where can they learn more about you, your technology and, and connect with you? Sure. So, you know, the easiest way is just uh, www.proteincure.com. That's cure with a Q. Um, you can also just email me at lucas at proteincure.com. Again, cure with a Q. Uh, if you're in London, one of my co-founders is actually speaking at a kind of AI conference in, in August, uh, KDD. Um, come talk to him. You know, if you're, if you're into drug discovery and you're in Toronto, we would love to take you to dinner, learn more. Uh, and if, again, like I said, if you're a machine learning engineer or a molecular dynamics expert looking for a job, you know, reach out to us. Uh, or if you're a partner interested in looking, learning more about our projects, reach out to us as well. Great. Uh, you might get a lot of dinner requests coming <laughs> your way. By my, my pleasure. Uh, <laughs> and thanks a lot, Simon, for doing this, by the way. This is a great podcast. And you know, for, I know for someone breaking into the drug discovery side from the AI side, for us, it's something that we listen to and learn a lot from. No, oh, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. I learned a lot as well today, and I, I'm pretty sure our listeners did as well. So thanks and good luck. Great. Thanks a lot, Simon. You just listened to my conversation with Lucas Cial, co-founder and head of business operations at Protein Cure. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you want to catch future episodes, be sure to subscribe. Just look for Artificial Intelligence in Drug Discovery in your favorite podcast player, then hit the subscribe button. Until our next episode, be well and work smart.